as we continue our worship in the word, let me take a moment to bow in prayer and a preparation for that. Father, we are just so grateful this morning to welcome in the newest members of our church. We're grateful, Father, for the leadership of our body. Thank you, Father, for those who serve so faithfully. Um, uh, we pray, Lord, that you would, as we now transition uh, from our time in worship to the word, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts and minds for what you have for us. Do you get us out of the way this morning? What we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and who we are not in Christ, we ask that you make us, and we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, not too long ago, um, my wife and I were out at having a meal together at a local restaurant with our family, and as we got to the end of the meal, I proceeded to go ahead and ask the waitress if she could pass us the check. Uh, but the manner which she answered surprised me a bit when she said, actually, you're free to go. I said, excuse me? She said, yeah, you're free to go. And then she began to explain the good news. She said, somebody in the restaurant has paid for your ticket and you're free to go. There's nothing more that you need to do. There's nothing more that you can do. You're free to go. And you know, as I was thinking about that this past week, I was thinking, you know, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is, has a similar message. Although you and I owe a debt that we could never repay, God, by his love and his grace and his mercy, sent Jesus to go to a cross, to die in our place, and to pay the debt that we could never repay, and to buy our salvation for us. And he, Jesus confirmed that on the cross in John chapter 19, verse 30, when he declared before he died to telestai. To telestai is actually an accounting term. It can be translated paid in full. It can be translated it is finished. But when Jesus declared to telestai it is finished, paid in full, what he was saying is the work of Christ on the cross is finished and complete. There's nothing more that you and I have to do. There's nothing more that we need to do. There's not even anything we can do in order to earn our salvation or to add to the finished work of Christ on the cross. But even though there's nothing we can add to the finished work of Christ on the cross in regards to our salvation does not mean some don't try. Just because you can't add to the finished work of Christ does not mean that some don't place the requirement on others in order to earn their salvation. They have to do X, Y, or Z. And that's why the letter of Galatians is written, in order to defend the one true gospel, that because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from human effort in Christ's finished work. And so we're continuing in the letter of Galatians. I'll invite you there with me, Galatians chapter 2. We're going to be in the first 10 verses together as we continue to read about how Paul continues to defend this one true gospel. In our text together, we're going to consider how Paul proves that there is gospel unity among the apostles, that the message he was preaching was the same message the apostles in Jerusalem were preaching. And because of that, God's word concerning the good news is trustworthy and true. Last time we were together, back in chapter 1, verses 11 to 25, we considered Paul's defense of the one true gospel by means of defending the origin of it. Paul said the gospel isn't human in origin, it's divine in origin. It was given to him directly by the Lord Jesus Christ, and now Paul seeks to prove the gospel is unified when it came to the apostles who preached it along with himself. And so as we consider how we prove that, would you stand 
in honor of the reading of the word, Galatians chapter 2, we'll be in the first 10 verses together. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, for they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given me, they gave it me and Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. The word of the Lord, y'all may be seated in the presence of God this morning. This morning, as we walk through the text, we're going to consider how, how Paul proved gospel unity among the apostles how he proved that his message to the Gentile nations and to the uh, churches throughout the region of Galatia that he had already preached and proclaimed to them and was continuing to preach and proclaim was the same message that the apostles received from Christ and were teaching and preaching in the Jerusalem church. Because if that's true, the gospel, the one true gospel, is trustworthy and True. So how does Paul prove that? First, he's going to describe his trip to Jerusalem. Paul is going to describe his second trip to Jerusalem in the first five verses. As we get to hear about Paul's trip to Jerusalem, as Paul proves um, gospel unity among the apostles, we get to hear some details that surround it. Paul begins by describing the timing of his second visit to Jerusalem. Paul says, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Uh, Paul tells us that over his entire ministry, this is only the second time he's visiting Jerusalem. If you were with us back in chapter 1 in verses 11 to 25, Paul was pretty much giving us his testimony, an autobiography of his life. And in the autobiography of his life, he shared after three years after his conversion, after spending three years in Arabia, he made his first trip to Jerusalem. He made his first trip to Jerusalem and spent only 15 days with Peter, and he spent a little time with James, the brother of Jesus. But, Pete, but basically what Paul tells us is that the first trip that he had made uh, was Three years after, and so the gospel, according to chapter 1, that he had preached and proclaimed was not received from the apostles, was not received from any man, but he had received it directly from Jesus Christ. 
So in chapter 1, he argues his first visit to Jerusalem proves that his gospel was divine and not human in origin, directly from Jesus. But the purpose of his second visit was to prove that he, along with the apostles, were preaching the same gospel. And because it's the same gospel, that gospel is trustworthy and true. And so the timing of the visit to Jerusalem took place 14 years, either after his conversion or after his previous visit. So we're reminded at least a decade has passed since Paul has visited Jerusalem to spend time, at least quality time as we're going to see it here, with the other apostles. And those who are going to be mentioned here in verse 9 are Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, and John. And so we begin in the text and we consider the timing of the visit. Secondly, Paul tells us about the companions who accompanied him on the visit. Uh, after 14 years, Paul says, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and I also took Titus with me. Now, in a moment, I want to tell you the significance about the fact that Paul took Titus with him, an uncircumcised Gentile, as a means of affirming the gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from human effort, apart from requiring someone to be circumcised. But I just wanted to pause here for a moment to consider the fact that wherever Paul went, wherever Paul ministered, he often brought companions with him. You know, we're reminded when it comes to our Christian faith, when we put our faith in Jesus as, in our, as our Savior and Lord, um, it's a personal relationship. You know, I can't give my faith to my children. They've got to have their own faith. I can't give my faith to my spouse. She's got to have her own faith. And so when it comes to our, 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 our faith, it's, it's something that we, 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 we can't we can't give to someone else, and so it's got to be our own. And so Paul, whenever he traveled around, he always brought companions with him. And I'd like to encourage us as followers of Jesus that while our personal relationship with Jesus is important, God didn't call us to an individual relationship with him. He called us to have Christian community and do the Christian life in community and serve alongside of brothers and sisters in Christ. And so uh, Paul had fellow companions who traveled with him, and I would suggest we should have the same. You know, when you think about these three guys, a, a Barnabas, a Paul, and a Titus, it serves as a great example of three kinds of people each of us should have in our lives. Barnabas was an encourager. We all need an encourager in our lives. Someone who's going to come alongside of us and help us according to our needs in Christ Jesus. I want to read about Barnabas throughout the book of Acts. We're first introduced to him as an encourager in Acts chapter 4, verse 26. You learn that Barnabas was not his name. It was actually Joseph or Joseph. And the reason he was called Barnabas is because Barnabas means son of encouragement. The apostles saw Barnabas as such an encouragement to them that they said, you are going to be named that. Let me read that to you. Acts 4.36 says, And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and bought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so we're reminded Barnabas was an encourager, and we all need an encourager in our lives. If I could define an encourager, an encourager is someone who helps build you up according to your needs in Christ Jesus. An encourager is not someone who builds you up according to your fleshly desires. 
is not a yes man or a yes woman who tells you what you want to hear, but an encourager is someone who comes alongside of you and builds you up according to your needs in Christ, and that was Barnabas. Not only was Barnabas an encourager in chapter 4, verse 36 of Acts, he was a generous man as well. Not only was he an encourager, he was also a great supporter. When we read about Paul, who after his conversion uh, came to the apostles, the apostles were fearful to have anything to do with him because he was a persecutor of the church. They were thinking he was going to uh, perhaps arrest them as he arrested so many. But in Acts 9, 26 to 27, we read about the support that Barnabas provided Saul. It says, when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. You can't blame them. This guy's persecuting the church, dragging people away, arresting them, and then uh, um, 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 endorsing the fact that they are put to death. And he did not believe what, that he was a disciple. Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. What a great thing to have someone in your life with someone who believes in you, who knows you. And then it says, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And so Barnabas was an encourager. He was a supporter. He was also a recruiter. As he's ministering in the church in Antioch, he thinks to, my, to himself, who would be a great person to minister here as the church among the Gentiles is exploding? And he thinks of Paul. Acts eleven twenty five to 26 says, Then Barnabas departed from Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. He was a, a recruiter. He came alongside Paul and he says, hey, your ministry would be, would be blessed if you came and served the Lord in Antioch. And he did just that. But fourthly, Barnabas was a man of conviction. Later on, as Paul and Barnabas are together on the first missionary journey in the book of Acts, we learn that eventually they go their separate ways. And the reason they go their separate ways is because of disagreement over a young man by the name of John Mark, who was with them during that first missionary journey. Well, John Mark abandons them through the first missionary journey, and Paul says, we're not taking him back with us again, while Barnabas, who's the man of encouragement, who is a supporter, says, Paul, I think you should... Uh, take him, and they end up going their separate ways. Let me read that to you, Acts 15, 26 to 40, that shows us Barnabas was not just an encourager, he was a man of conviction. And those are the kind of people we need in our life. It says, then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Let's go on a second missionary journey. Now, Barnabas was determined to take with them, John called Mark, but Paul insisted they should not take him with them, the one who had departed from Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. He had abandoned them. Then the contention became so sharp that they, departed, they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. Barnabas was a man of conviction, and he stood by those convictions to the point that him and Paul went their separate ways. The question is, well, who was right? Was Paul right to leave with Silas and to go about their missionary journey? Was 
Barnabas right to take John Mark and to continue their ministry. Regardless, we get to see God continue to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And what we learn later in 2 Timothy 4.11, as Paul comes to the end of his life, we learn that John Mark is seen as a blessing to him, not a burden. In 2 Timothy 4.11, it says, only Luke is with me as he writes Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry, I'd like to suggest part of the reason for that is a man of encouragement like Barnabas, a man of conviction like Barnabas. And we are reminded this morning that we all need a Barnabas in our life who will encourage us and build us up according to our needs in Christ Jesus, who will support us, who will see the spiritual gifting that God has provided us and help us get connected within the church body to serve with our gifts and to serve the Lord in the way that he's called us to, and a man or woman of conviction who can pour into our lives. And Paul takes this trip to Jerusalem, his second trip, and he brings this man of encouragement with him. The second kind of person we should all have in our life is a Paul. Paul was a man who always was bringing up new guys and pouring into them. We all need a Paul who's going to pour God's word into our lives. You know, all of us have the truth of God's word, but as you consider how it applies to your life in different seasons of life, without children, with children, children as they grow up or enter into the world, how you go about applying the truth of God's word, it's nice to have a Paul who you can come alongside of and say, hey, what does God's word have to say about this or what does God's word have to say about that? What does it look like when I'm facing this challenge in my life and have a guy like Paul who's walking alongside of you and pouring into your life? Have a guy like Barnabas who encourages you and supports you, a man of conviction, builds you up according to your needs in Christ Jesus. Have a man like Paul who's pouring into you. Um, And then thirdly, have a guy like Titus who you can pour into. We often say in accordance with Matthew 28, 19 to 20, our mission at Twin Rivers is to make disciples. We do that by knowing God and by making him known. The way we get to know God is get to know him in his word and to have others come alongside of us, pouring God's word into our heart and encouraging us in the truths of scripture. But as we are poured into, we are to pour into others as well. And so the reminder this morning is, who's the Titus in your life? For some of us, you would say, hey, my children are those that I have the opportunity to pour into. My grandchildren are those that I have the opportunity to pour into. But it's a reminder that your primary ministry should be your family, but also your ministry to your church should be a priority as well. And there may be a young man or a young woman or someone... In, who's younger in the faith that you can come alongside of and as you are being poured into in regards to, of the word of God that you would pour into them as well. Who's your Barnabas? Who's your Paul? And who's your Titus? Paul always had men. He was coming alongside of Titus, Timothy, Silas, Luke even. All of these men he walked alongside of. And so Paul takes Barnabas and he takes Titus. Why is Titus significant? Because while Barnabas was a converted Jew to Christianity, Titus was an uncircumcised Gentile converted to Christianity. And the false teachers 
who had visited the churches throughout Galatia that Paul had originally preached the one true gospel to. They were attacking both the message and the messenger of the gospel. They were attacking Paul's authority as an apostle, and they were putting into question the fact that Christ's work on the cross is finished and nothing more needs to be added to it. These false teachers were saying faith in Jesus is important, but faith in Jesus is not enough. And so Paul takes Titus alongside of him, who is an uncircumcised Gentile, in order to prove that his gospel is the same gospel as the apostles. He's going to consider whether Peter, James, and John are actually going to say, you know what? Titus needs to get circumcised, or they will say, as they should, Titus does not need to get circumcised. Why? Because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You don't need to add to the finished work of Christ on the cross. Gentiles don't need to become Jews. They don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to walk in obedience to the Jewish law. You're saved by grace through faith apart from human effort. And so Paul brings Titus alongside of him to prove gospel unity among the apostles and clarify they have the same Gospel. Thirdly, Paul describes the motivation for his trip, second trip to Jerusalem. It tells us in verse 2 And I went up by revelation. Why did Paul go up? Was he questioning or doubting his gospel? Was the the, the, the apostles in Jerusalem doubting his gospel. And so they said, hey, Paul, I need you to come uh, up to Jerusalem and we need to have a conversation about what you believe so we can make sure you're in agreement with what we are in agreement with to make sure that if we need to rebuke you or correct you in any way, that we can do that. No, the reason he went up is because of revelation. Now, we don't know exactly what this revelation was, but it was a revelation from God. And by the command of God, Paul is commanded to go to Jerusalem, and he does that. Why is he to go to Jerusalem? Well, we're going to learn in order to prove that he's preaching the same gospel as them. But also, if you jump to verse 5, it says, um, we did not yield even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Why did God command Paul to go? Because as the false teachers are attacking the message of the gospel and the messenger of the gospel, God's heart is that the truth of the gospel would continue with the churches in Galatia. So that the truth of the gospel would continue with you and I here today. What's at stake? What's at stake if the one true gospel is corrupted and anything is added to the finished work of Christ on the cross? Our salvation is at stake. Our eternity is at stake. Our fellowship with God forever and ever is at stake. And so Paul's heart and God's heart is that we would continue in the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we see the motivation for the trip. It's revelation and then Fourthly, we see the, the conversation of the trip. It was centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we continue to read in verse 2, it says, And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. Paul said, this is what I've been teaching for over a decade for over 14 years, as God has given me the truth of the gospel, revealed it to me on the road to Damascus as I was converted, Paul says, I declared the good news of Jesus Christ. 
that Jesus came from heaven to earth, died, was buried three days later, rose in newness of life and offers salvation as a free gift to anyone who would believe it. Paul declares the true gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. Fire, I delivered to you first of all, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose Again, according to the scriptures, he declares the good news that he had declared to the Gentiles, to the apostles. And so the conversation is centered around the gospel message of Christ. This morning, I'd like you to consider with me, when's the last time you had a conversation about the content of the gospel with your spouse? When's the last time you had a conversation about the gospel with your children if you have a family? Or perhaps had an opportunity to, to, to talk about the content of the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he accomplished and what he offers and how he invites us to follow him with those within your circle of influence because the most important message that we must get right as we're reminded of throughout the series is we need to be reminded of the one true gospel of Jesus Christ and this is the focus of their conversation. And Paul is going to confirm along with the apostles that their gospel is one and their gospel is trustworthy and is true. And so the conversation focuses on the gospel. What is the conclusion of the conversation? Well, the conclusion is they're in agreement. How much are they in agreement? Well, remember he brought Titus with him? And the apostles have an opportunity to, 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 to say whether or not Titus, truly to be saved, needs to be circumcised. And you know what we hear in verse 3? It says this, Yet not even Titus, who is with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. The conclusion is this, circumcision is not required for salvation. No human effort, no human work is required for salvation. And the reason Titus was not compelled to be circumcised is because circumcision is not required for salvation. And they're in agreement. That's gospel unity there. They're unified around the truth of the gospel that Christ's work on the cross is finished and nothing needs to be added to it, including a Gentile becoming a Jew, being circumcised, and also walking on obedience to the Mosaic law. But by implication, not only were they in agreement that circumcision is not required for salvation, but anyone who teaches circumcision is required for salvation would be in the category of a false teacher. Anyone who adds to the finished work of Christ on the cross as a means of salvation is a false teacher. And these apostles, including Paul and the apostles in Jerusalem, Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, and John, are in agreement. Circumcision is not required for salvation, and anyone who says that it is, is a false teacher. Titus wasn't compelled by the apostles to be circumcised in order to make sure he was saved, but he was feeling the pressure from the false teachers who we read about in verses 4 to 5 who were adding that pressure. We read about them in verse 4. It says, And this occurred because of the false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus. So they snuck into the meeting somehow that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. 
How are the false teachers described in verses four to five first? Notice the false teachers are described as false brethren. It's interesting to note that they're referred to as false brethren because a brethren is a brother or sister in Christ, recipient of God's grace, a recipient of God's peace. And the reason they're described as false brethren is because the greatest threat to the church is not on the outside coming in, but on the inside going out. And these false teachers were among the professing believers within the local church who professed faith in Jesus, but the reality was they were adding to the finished work of Christ on the cross, and therefore they are not true believers. They are false false teachers as well. And so first, they're described as false brethren. Secondly, they're described as spies. They They spies, spies who were coming into these meetings. And it says, they secretly brought in who came in by spell to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, that that they might bring us into bondage. You know, when you trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, and you receive forgiveness of sins by grace through faith, apart from human effort, you are delivered from the bondage of the law and the consequences of the law. In our own ability... The law is good in the sense that it demonstrates the righteousness of God, but like a mirror, it can show us what's wrong, but it can't correct it. And so anyone who has been delivered from the bondage of the law and the consequences that come with disobedience with the law, ultimately what Paul is saying here is that these individuals are spies who come in and See your liberty, your freedom in Christ from the bondage of the law and want to bring you back under bondage. I want you to put you back into the shackles of legalism. And what Paul is saying is these false teachers are dangerous. And they're looking to corrupt the true gospel by ultimately not just attacking the gospel, but attacking the authority of the apostle Paul. And thirdly, Paul describes them as those to whom he and his companions did not yield. They stood for the truth of the gospel. Verse 5 says, to whom we did not yield submission even for now, not even for a moment was their teaching, false teaching, convincing to us. Not for a moment did we consider putting the pressure on Titus to be compelled to be circumcised because circumcision is not required for salvation and we did not want to corrupt the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason we did not yield was so that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Why are we walking through the letter of Galatians and talking about the autobiography of Paul and his testimony? Some of us are wondering, how does this even apply to us today as we're considering his second trip to Jerusalem? Well, the reason it's relevant to you and I is because how this ultimately unfolded is the difference between whether or not we know the one true gospel or We don't. The fact that there is gospel unity among the apostles and they preach the same gospel that's by grace through faith in Jesus apart from human effort. That's how we're justified. That's how we receive salvation. Now then can we continue in the truth of the gospel? This morning, it's an invitation for those of us who have the opportunity to have gospel-centered conversations with our loved ones. 
with our families, with those in our circles of influence, with those in our small groups, within our church, we have an opportunity to clarify the one true gospel so that we as believers will continue in it. Because what's at stake is the salvation of the next generations to come. You get the gospel wrong in this generation. You get the gospel wrong for generations to come. Paul proved gospel unity among the apostles by means of describing his trip to Jerusalem. Paul proved gospel unity. The question I want us to consider is how are we encouraged to maintain gospel unity? How can we maintain gospel unity with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? I'd like to give us just a few takeaways. The first is this, maintain gospel unity by getting to know the gospel. We've been talking about the gospel over the past few weeks and we're going to continue to do that. And my prayer is as a church, we would continue to declare the one true gospel and we'll repeat it again and again until it's just pounded into our minds. And it's the truth that Jesus Christ is the son of God who has come into the world. He came, he died, after dying on the cross, was buried, three days later, rose again in newness of life, offering salvation as a free gift to anyone who would receive it. We need to get the gospel right. And so maintain gospel unity by first getting to know the gospel. I just read earlier 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. That's a great summary of the gospel. And so that might be a great verse to, to memorize or to bring to mind. It's the good news of Jesus, what he accomplished on our behalf through his finished work on the cross. Maintain gospel unity by means of, of, of knowing the one true gospel. Secondly, maintain gospel unity by believing the one true gospel. If you're here today and you haven't trusted in Christ and his finished work on the cross to forgive your sins, maybe you're depending on your own good deeds. Maybe there are a number of things you're thinking, well, this is going to put me in a good favor with God, a good standing with God. Uh, ultimately, baptism won't save you. Membership won't save you. Uh, observing the ordinance, including uh, partaking of the Lord's table, won't save you. Uh, only thing that will save you is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, your Savior and your Lord. But if you're genuinely saved, you're going to see the fruit of your faith. If I'm genuinely saved, not only do I want a personal relationship with Jesus, I want a personal relationship with his body, the local church. If I'm genuinely saved, I want to grow in my walk with the Lord and produce the fruit of the Spirit and, and love him and see the Spirit of God begin to change and work, change my life and work in my life in, in a wonderful way. Maintain gospel unity by believing in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. How do you do that? We talk about it often. Admit your need for Jesus. Admit your debt that you owe that you could never repay. Romans 3.23 says, for, uh, for all have sinned and fallen short. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. What we owe God is an eternity without God and his people forever and ever. We are spiritually separated from him forever and ever. But the gift of God is eternal life. Why? Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. This morning, admit your desperate need for Jesus to pay your debt. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world and confess Jesus as your Savior who forgives your sins and your Lord who's going to rule and reign over your life now and 
forever. Thirdly, maintain gospel unity by standing with those who defend the one true gospel. Stand with men like Paul. Stand with men like Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, and John. Stand with those who have stood throughout church history for the truth of the good news of the gospel of freedom, the gospel of grace, that trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross, that it is complete and nothing more needs to be added to it. And the way that you do it is is by being a part of a Bible-believing church who defends the truth of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. We need brothers and sisters in Christ who are around us who will continue to stand for the truth. Whether it's Twin Rivers or another church, I want to encourage you to join a local church body who can encourage you in what it means to stand for the truth of the gospel. I think about the many churches that I was a part of and grateful for the churches I grew up in who stood for the truth of the gospel. Grateful for churches like Twin Rivers as we continue to teach and preach the gospel, the one true gospel of Jesus Christ and be unified as a leadership of the church that this is a priority for us. So join a Bible-believing church. Secondly, remove wrong influences and surround yourself with right influences. Anyone is causing you to be led astray for the sake of the gospel, consider the kind of voices that you are letting into your heart and to your mind. Make sure you've got a Barnabas in your life, a Paul in your life, a, a Titus in your life. You know, if you ever have an opportunity to disciple a fellow believer, you realize very quickly that as, as you think that they're going to get a benefit out of it, you get more of a benefit than they do. As you get to pour God's word into another person and, and pray with them and, and walk alongside of them, I don't know how many times I walk away from, from meetings with folks and think to myself, man, I, this was more of a blessing for me than it was for them. As I'm reminded of the, the foundational truths of, of God's word, while well, as I'm encouraged by their faith and encouraged by their prayers, it's always a blessing to come alongside a fellow believer and encourage them in the truths of scripture and encourages you more than you could ever imagine in light of that. And so remove wrong influence and then thirdly, be available to declare or defend the truth when the opportunity presents itself. This week, if you would pray, Lord, I want to be available. Give me the opportunity to clarify the gospel as I get to talk to people in my circle of influence. Lord, make me available this, perhaps this week as I get to defend the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, either declaring it or defending it. Be ready, be prepared, be able to share it. Memorize 1 Corinthians 15.3 if you have to, because then you'll be ready to share what is the good news of the gospel. And so Paul proves gospel unity. We're invited to maintain gospel unity. He proved it by describing his trip to Jerusalem. Secondly, he proves it by describing the endorsement given by the apostles, given by his fellow apostles. In verse 6, Paul continues, and we get to see the reasons um, um, they endorsed him and extended the right hand of fellowship to him. Verse 6 says, but from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. Uh, Paul gives the first reason why they endorsed his ministry. 
Let me skip to verse 9 to show you where they endorsed it. Verse 9 says, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. According to verse 6, the reason why they, they endorsed Paul's ministry is because they realized they're preaching the same gospel. Paul says, I don't... They didn't need to add anything to it because there's no need to add anything to the finished work of Christ on the cross. As Paul brings Titus along with him, they don't say he needs to be circumcised, he needs to walk in obedience to the law. They say we've got the same gospel. Now, as you read verse 6, some of you might be thinking, Paul sounds a little bit sarcastic and maybe a bit disrespectful when he says it this way. He says, but from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. Paul is not being disrespectful. Paul, in verse 9, he's going to describe the apostles as those who seem to be pillars in the faith. But the reason he describes uh, them this way is because he is trying to protect the true gospel against the Judaizers who were overemphasizing the, the, the authority of the apostles in Jerusalem at the expense of his authority as an apostle to the Gentiles. And what he basically says, it makes no difference what man has to say. What makes every difference in the world is what God has to say. I mean, you know, this morning, we're just those who are vessels who are used by him to, to do what he calls us to do. The fact that he saves us is a great blessing. The fact that he uses us to preach and proclaim the gospel men of, uh, word of Jesus Christ is an even greater blessing indeed. And so Paul begins, he says, the reason I, I've got the endorsement in my ministry is because we've got the same gospel. There's gospel unity around the truth. Uh, secondly, as um, Paul continues in verse 7 to 8, he says, But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to be circumcised, to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. Why did they endorse his ministry? Secondly, because the same God who was working in Peter's ministry and James, the brother of Jesus' ministry and John's ministry is the same God working in Paul's ministry. And what he says here clearly is he says, the same one who committed the gospel to me is the same one who committed the gospel to them. The same one who empowered my ministry is the same one who empowered their ministry. There is gospel unity here. We know the gospel, and we know the one true God who commits the gospel to us and who empowers us to take the gospel literally to the ends of the earth. It's the same God. And then in verse 9, we see the third reason he is endorsed in his ministry by his fellow apostles um, because of the grace of God. God not only provides saving grace, he provides enabling grace, and they recognize that. In verse 9, it says, And when James, Cephas, and John, these are the pillars, these are the men of repute, these are the ones who seem to be men of influence that Paul is referring to, Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, and John, who seem to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. What Paul says, they could not deny that God, God's grace had saved us. 
And they could not deny that God's grace was enabling us to take the one true gospel to the ends of the earth. And so they gave us their right hand of fellowship. What does it mean to give a right hand of fellowship? To shake hands and saying, we are partners in ministry. We are not competitors. We complement one another in the ministries that God has given each one of us. And is it interesting to consider that Jesus describes himself as the head and his church as the body. As the head, he guides and directs it. As the body, we are one body with one head. We are to make disciples going to the ends of the earth, but we each have a part to play in the gospel. The question this morning is what part do you play? For them, Back then in the first century, Peter, James, and John, during this time, their main ministry was to the, to, the, to the Jewish people in Jerusalem. For Paul, his main ministry was to the Gentiles. He preached before Jews, Gentiles, and kings. That's what Acts chapter 9, verse 16 told us. And he would suffer greatly for the cause of Christ, yet his primary ministry was to the Gentiles. This morning, as a follower of Jesus, not only have you been forgiven by his grace, but you've been commissioned by his grace The question I'll always like to ask our church individually is, what's your ministry? How has God called you to serve him here in the church, in your circle of influence, in your family? How has God called you to serve him? And each one of us should know what that is. Why? Because we all play a part. We all have spiritual gifts. And it's not because we're special or because we're talented, but because of the Holy Spirit who resides in us. In us, and so they could not deny that the grace that had saved Paul and Barnabas and the grace that enabled Paul and Barnabas to take the gospel literally to the ends of the earth. And then, verse 10, he concludes this and he says, They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. You know, sometimes as a church, when we emphasize God's word, emphasize the teachings of God's word and doctrine and the truth of the gospel. It's one thing to believe it. It's another thing to walk in accordance with it. If we are recipients of God's generosity, his unmerited favor, it makes sense that as God loves us enough to save us, that we would also love others in helping those around us. And what we're encouraged to do in light of this text is to help those in need. Help those who have need, not just spiritually, and talk to them about the truth of the gospel, but love them as a whole person. We can provide for their needs in regards to their physical needs. You know, um, uh, November is, is just a great month for us as we have an opportunity to focus on a global missions and local missions. In terms of global, we think of, of uh, Operation Christmas Child. We're taking these boxes, we're filling them. We've got a goal of 200 and sending them out. They're not just a box. They got the gospel in there as well. And that's an exciting thing. But also we get to focus on local missions. So it's local and global in the month of November. And the local part of it is we each year put together all of these Thanksgiving boxes with turkey and all of the trimmings inside and the message of the truth of the gospel. What a wonderful thing that we can do as a church to not just come together 
and insert the truth of God's word, but feed folks and pray for folks as they come up and, and receive the boxes and all come together as a church to say, hey, what can we do? Not just corporately. The next question is, what can you do individually? We have opportunities before us. It's about seizing those opportunities. Uh, the reason partly the apostles are talking to him about this, when you think about the churches who were, uh, had the least in terms of, of finances, it was the Jerusalem church. The reason is because they're being persecuted by the Jews there, the Jewish leaders there. And so when you're being persecuted there, when um, life really revolves around the temple and as a Christian, you're not allowed in or to, to help or even to make a living for yourself, in regards to that, there's financial need. And Paul, on numerous occasions, would, would, would go throughout the churches who, who had much, even those who had little, the Macedonian churches, and yet they gave so generously in order to meet the needs of others, and that's why Paul says, the very thing which I was also eager to do. This morning, I want to invite us as a church to ask God for an eagerness to serve him by serving those around us who desperately need Jesus, who have a debt that they could never repay, but they don't know what Christ has done for them, and we can share the truth of the gospel with them. We can not just bring them a turkey or bring them some way to help them physically or donate some socks as we've done for October. By the way, we're, I think we're up to 717 socks. It's a lot of socks. You still have a few days, October 31st. You can still donate more socks. But what a wonderful thing, not just to say, hey, we got some socks for you, but as the Eugene Mission serves there as the gospel goes out to folks in that Place as well. And so be eager to serve the Lord in the different opportunities that God gives each one of us. Paul proves gospel unity among the apostles. Because they preach the same gospel, the gospel we believe and declare and defend is the same gospel they believe, declared and defended. It's trustworthy and true. And because Paul declared it, we are to maintain it. Let me give you just a final few takeaways in our text this morning. The first one is this, maintain gospel unity around the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. Be reminded there is only one. There are not multiple paths to heaven. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Maintain gospel unity around the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. Adrian Rogers once said, salvation is not a reward for the righteous. Salvation is a gift for the guilty. We are not rewarded for any good deeds that we do we receive the free gift of salvation apart from human effort, all based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. Secondly, maintain gospel unity by growing in your knowledge of Jesus in the word. This morning, I don't want you to just know what the gospel is. I want, to get you, I want you to know Jesus of the gospel because it's all about him. When you read the Bible, you should draw closer to Jesus. In the Old Testament, Jesus is foretold. In the Gospels, he's revealed. In the epistles, he's explained. In, in Revelation, he's anticipated. It's all about him, and it all points to him. Let us continue to go back to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then lastly this morning, maintain gospel unity by seeing the immeasurable value of being a follower of Jesus Christ. 
This morning, I want you to know this, and I want to illustrate in just a moment, that following Jesus may not always be easy, but following Jesus will always be worth it. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you must be willing to deny yourself. You must be willing to take up your cross and you must be willing to follow me. And so for some, it means you're going to be persecuted. You're going to lose your family. Your loved ones are going to be pulled apart because of the truth of the gospel. Following Jesus may not always be easy, but it's always worth it. Let me read to you a testimony by Nabil Qureshi, the author of the book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. He died at the age of 34 in 2016, born into a devout Muslim family, he started wrestling with the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ while he was still in medical school. A friend was talking to him about the gospel. He was talking to him about the Quran. And as he continued to wrestle through the truths of the gospel, he was convinced that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, that he had actually died and rose again, that he was not just a prophet, but that he was the one true God, the second person of the Trinity. But Nabil said what ultimately led to his conversion, what ultimately led him to trust in Jesus was not because he believed Jesus was going to make life more easy, but he believed Jesus was going to make for him life more difficult, but it was worth it nonetheless. Let me read to you his testimony. He says this, I began mourning the impact of the decision I knew I had to make to trust in Jesus. On the first day of my second year of medical school, it became too much to bear. Yearning for comfort, I decided to skip school. Returning to my apartment, I placed the Quran and the Bible in front of me. I turned to the Quran, but there was no comfort there. For the first time, the book seemed utterly irrelevant to my suffering, irrelevant to my life, felt like a dead book. With nowhere left to go, I opened up the New Testament and started reading. Very quickly, I came to the passage that said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Electric, the words leapt off the page and jump-started my heart. I could not put the Bible down. I began reading fervently, reaching Matthew 10:37 which taught me that I must love God more than my mother and father. But Jesus, I said, accepting you would be like dying. I will have to give up everything. The next verses spoke to me saying, he who does not take his cross and follow me after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Jesus was being very blunt. For Muslims, following the gospel is more than a call to prayer. It's a call to die. I knelt at the foot of my bed and gave up my life. A few days later, the two people I loved most in this world were shattered by my betrayal. To this day, my family is broken by the decision I made, and it is excruciating every time I see the cost I had to pay. But Jesus is the God of reversal and redemption. He redeems sinners to life by his death, and he redeemed a symbol of execution by repurposing it for salvation. He redeemed my suffering by making me rely upon him for my every moment, bending my heart toward him. That testimony reminds us that following Jesus may not always be easy, but following Jesus will always be worth it because Jesus is truly the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world to Pay the debt of guilty sinners like you and me. If you haven't trusted in Christ, follow him. If you're following him, continue to. It may not be always be easy, but certainly it will be worth it. Can we pray?
Father, we are grateful this morning for the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that is worth receiving, the gospel that's worth declaring, the gospel is, that is worth defending. I pray, Father, for our church that we would stand for the truth of the one true gospel, that we would continue to stand together, continuing to declare that salvation is based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. There's nothing we can add to it. There's nothing we can take away from it. Father, if there's someone here today who would say, you know what, I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. I know it's not always going to be easy. I know it's going to be worth it. I'm fully convinced of who Jesus <coughs> is. I pray that they can express this to you right here, right now. Father, I need Jesus. I owe a debt because of my sin that I could never repay. And my sin is the very thing that separates me from you, God. But I also believe that Jesus is the one that you sent to this earth your son, to die on my behalf. After he was buried, he rose again three days later, and I know he offers me salvation as a gift, the forgiveness of sins. Today, I confess Jesus as my Savior. I confess him as my Lord, the one I'm going to follow all the days of my life into eternity. Father, as a church, we continue to thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior and Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.